Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, we are in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus has just told His disciples that they will be hated by the world. He told them, He gave them four reasons for the hatred that the world will give to them. We studied those last week and then this morning in Family Bible Hour. And and then He told us the response that we should have to the persecution that's going to come in reading a, a biography of William Tyndale. Um, He said of the persecution that he was facing, I never expected anything else. I never expected anything else. Um, The Bible says it. He translated the Bible into English. He gave us our English Bible, and he said, I'm translating the Bible that prophesies I'm going to experience suffering. So Jesus tells them they're going to experience suffering, and then he's going to continue to tell them. He's told them many times already, but he's going to continue to tell them in the passage this morning, I'm leaving which has just broken their hearts. But this time, when he says, I'm leaving, he's going to say, it's actually for your good that I leave. If I didn't leave, something wouldn't happen. And that something is so amazing that it is actually for your good that I'm leaving. So how is it for their good that Jesus is going to leave them? Let's pick it up in John chapter 16, verse 5, and we'll read all the way down through verse 15. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All these things, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Father, these are rich words. It just seems like every Sunday we come to a passage that we just can't do justice. This is holy ground. And God, these words are so necessary for us today. They're so applicable to the way that we live our lives. So Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly what these verses are teaching us to feel your heart for your disciples on that night so long ago and to hear your commands anew and afresh to us today. God, I pray that you would enable us to hear your word the way that the Spirit intended for us to hear it. 
He desires in these moments to point us to Jesus. And so I pray that he would do just that. Show us Christ. Reveal to us the majesty of our Savior. Teach us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. These verses are so powerful, and they're all about the Holy Spirit. They're all about the ministry that the Holy Spirit has. And so under kind of a heading of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there's really three main points. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit in verses 5 through 7. There's the work of the Spirit in the world, the ministry that the Spirit has in the world, verses 8 through 11, and the work or the ministry that the Holy Spirit has in the life of believers, or specifically the disciples, but in believers' lives. So that's verses 12 through 15. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the disciples. So let's start with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in verse 5, Now I am going to him who sent me. I'm going, I'm going to depart, I'm going to the Father, but none of you asks me, where are you going? Now this is a little bit of a tricky verse. This is a strange verse because they actually did, in chapter 14, verse 5, ask very specifically, where is it that you're going? You're leaving us, where are you going? But what Jesus is saying is nobody's asked me that question as far as where are you going? What work do you have to do? What is it that you are going to do? What is this about for you leaving? What is it about for you? Instead, you have all been asking where are you going and why are you leaving us? What are you going to do? What are we going to do now that you're gone? The disciples have been focused on themselves. That's why in chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus said, If you had loved me, you would rejoice. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm leaving because I'm accomplishing something. But you're stuck on Jesus is gone, not on what Jesus is going to do. He's going back to the Father. If you flip over one chapter to chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory of which I had with you before the world was. He's going back to the glory that he had before creation began. And the disciples should have been rejoicing in this, but they have grief. This is that, that panic moment. That's why he says, verse 6, because I have said these things to you that I'm leaving, sorrow has filled your heart. This is that moment when the parents are are leaving the house to go on a date night. And the kids say, wait, you're leaving? And the babysitter's awesome, but the babysitter's still a babysitter, and mom and dad are leaving. And panic sets in as the parents are about to walk out of the door. This is exactly that same moment for these disciples. Their master is saying, I'm going to leave you, and you can't follow me where, where I'm going. The disciples are listening to Jesus emotionally. They're listening emotionally. They're not listening theologically. And that's why they have asked, where are you going in an emotional sense, not in a theological sense? And so what Jesus says to them, verse 7, I tell you the truth. Sorrow has filled your heart, verse 6, but I'm going to speak truth to you. Sorrow has filled your heart, but listen up. I'm going to speak truth, and God intends for truth to heal sorrow. The reality is sorrow will either drown out the truth that you know or sorrow will be drowned out by the truth that you know. In this case, sorrow is drowning out the truth that the disciples know. And so Jesus says, let me give you truth so it can drown out your sorrow. 
How would your heart respond in these moments? How does your heart respond to sorrow? One of my spiritual mentors through books and preaching, and uh, I did our premarital counseling, um, Pastor Rick Holland, one of the things that has stuck with me that he said many, many years ago and continues to say, but it's one of the ways that just philosophically I, I think about life and I see life and I have a grid about the way that I interact with the circumstances that I'm going through. He always asks three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel right now in this moment? The disciples would say panic, shock, anguish, sorrow. Why? What do I think? Why am I having these emotions? Well, because I'm being abandoned, because Jesus doesn't care. Remember, in the boat, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? But what do I know? Time out. I know that Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. I know that he loves me. So that will inform what I think, and that will inform what I feel. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? And then work backwards. What do I know to be true? Truth can drown out sorrow. If we really believed this, just think, if we really believed that the resurrection were true, that would change our sorrow. That would change the way that we experience sorrow. If we really believe the things that the Bible teaches us, truth would drown out sorrow. Now, this isn't to say life is not sorrowful. It is. And the Bible says that When we get to heaven, our tears will be wiped away, and that means that we're entering into heaven with tears on our faces. Life is incredibly sorrowful. But Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the truth so that truth can drown out sorrow. And what is the truth, he says, verse 7? It is to your advantage that I go away. It's actually for your greatest good that I get out of here. Okay, why? Verse 7. For, because if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why is it good that Jesus leaves? Very simply because the Holy Spirit will come. If Jesus doesn't leave, if he doesn't finish the mission, then the Holy Spirit's not going to come. But if he completes the mission, the Holy Spirit will be sent. And it is to your advantage that you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said in chapter 14, The Holy Spirit's been with you in me, but now I want him to be in you. He's been with you in me, but now I want him to be in you. And after he says it's to your advantage that I go away because the helper's going to come, he's going to speak about the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit more than any other topic in the Upper Room Discourse. That tells me at least two things are going on in Jesus' mind. Number one, he really cares for the disciples being cared for. He wants to make sure they have a comforter, they have a helper, they have somebody who's going to walk alongside them. And number two, he wants to make sure that they really know who the Holy Spirit is and they really know what he's going to do. He's not saying, there's going to be this guy coming, he's the Holy Spirit, and you'll meet him, you'll get to know him and have fun with him, I'm out of here. He tells us exactly what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, most of the conversation about the Holy Spirit in evangelicalism today is about the gifts of the Spirit, and that's a good conversation to have. It's an important conversation. It's a biblical conversation. But first, very clearly, this passage isn't about the gifts of the Spirit. 
And second, that's not the most important aspect of the Spirit. I think the, the centralization of the, the Spirit conversation being on the gifts of the Spirit, I think the Holy Spirit's saying, stop doing that. Stop focusing on that. That's an aspect of who I am, but that's not the main point of who I am. I think he must be thinking, stop focusing on those things. Focus on Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to send the Helper, and He, when He comes, verse 8, He's going to convict the world. And He, when He comes, verse 13, the Spirit of truth. He will hear. He will speak. He will disclose. We've said it before in chapter 14, but just make note of it again. The Holy Spirit is a He, not an It. He's not a force. He's a person. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. He can be overjoyed. He's a he, not an it. And who is he? Back to chapter 14, verse 16. He is another helper, another helper. And two Greek words for another, heteros, another of a different kind. This is in Galatians 1, a different gospel. It's, it's a gospel, but it's a different gospel. It's another of a different kind. Heteros, it's where we get um, heterodox. It's, it's not true. It's wrong. It's not orthodox. But the other word, alas, it's another of the exact same kind. It's the exact same kind. And that's the word that Jesus uses in chapter 14, verse 16. I'm going to send you a helper, another helper. He's just like me. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is our first helper. If anyone sins, we have a helper, a parakletos, an advocate with the Father, and it is Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus says, I'm your first helper, and I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to be raised from the dead, I'm going to ascend into heaven, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send you another helper of the exact same kind, he is fully God, and he is going to do the work of helping you. Helper there in verse 7, the helper will not come to you if I don't leave, but if I go, I'm going to send him to you. That word helper two Greek words put together. Um, paraclete is the word that uh, you would know. Parakletos, para, alongside, kletos, to call. So to call alongside, somebody who walks alongside you, comes alongside you to help, to correct, to encourage, to comfort. An advocate gives you counsel. He runs the race alongside you. Notice he is a helper. He's not an observer. He doesn't just watch us yeah, don't do that. Nope. Yeah, that's good. Oh, stop. He's right along with, with us, alongside us. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is coming, and He is the reason why it's good that I go away. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Helper will not come. So the simple question is, why is it better to have the Holy Spirit in me than to have Jesus beside me? That's the question. That's what Jesus is saying. Why is it better to have the Holy Spirit inside me than to have Jesus beside me? I think we can summarize a couple different points based off of the Scriptures. Number one, Jesus couldn't be everywhere at one time. He had given um, the independent exercise of His divine attributes to the Father. He is still God. He still has all of those divine attributes, but the using of them, the independently exercising them on His own, he had given to the Father. Father, am I able to do this? Can I do this? That's why the temptations were a temptation. When Satan says, turn this rock into bread, there is nothing immoral about that. 
There's nothing immoral with turning a rock into a piece of bread to eat. But if Jesus had done that on his own initiative, he would have stepped outside of the limitations of humanity. He would have ceased to be 100% human. And if he ceases to be 100% human, then he is not my perfect substitute. So Jesus, in the kenosis, back in Philippians chapter 2, emptied himself by taking. He never emptied himself of his deity. He didn't give anything up. Paul is very clear. He emptied himself by gaining things. And he emptied himself specifically by taking the limitations of humanity onto himself. So he couldn't be everywhere at one time. He was confined to time and space and human limitations. But the Holy Spirit isn't. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is residing in us, residing in our brothers and sisters in Uganda, residing in believers all over the world. So it's better to have the Holy Spirit in us than to have Jesus beside us. The other reason is Jesus had work to do and he's finished that work. He's leaving. And he's going to rule and reign on his throne. And the Spirit will remain with us forever. So of course it's to our advantage that we have the Spirit. Think of, think of the people in the Old Testament that were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You think of Samson. Think of what he did. Think of the power that he had. Most people think that Samson you know, looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't think so. I think Samson looked like me. That's why everybody stared at him and went, there's no way you could do what you're doing except for the Holy Spirit. If he looks like Arnold, you go, well, yeah, he's kind of been spending a little bit of time in the gym, so maybe he can lift this gate on his shoulders. But if he looks like me, you go, there's no way he has the power to do that. That's only by the power of God. Think of David. A tiny little underdog stands in the presence of Goliath and says, you can't speak against my God like that. And in the presence of everybody today, you're going to die. Picks up a sling, picks up some stones, and kills him. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, I was reading a commentary about this a couple years ago. And the title for that section was, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth a thud. <laughs> Goliath falls. Why? Because the Holy Spirit empowers him. Think of Jesus. Think of everything that Jesus did. He did it all by the power of the Spirit. That's why when the Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's why they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says, you have blasphemed the Spirit. The Spirit's doing these works. He is doing the miracles. You've attributed the work of the Spirit to the devil. Jesus does not say, excuse me, you've blasphemed me because I'm doing those works. He's saying, no, the Spirit's doing these works. So Jesus says, all that is mine is going to be given to you through the Spirit. That's why it's really good that I get out of here and the Spirit come. Jesus designed that we would live this Christian life by faith, and so he gives us a way to do that. I'm out of here. Can't see me anymore. Trust in the helper that I'm promising to you. That's point number one, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says he's coming. I'm going to leave, and it's good that I leave because he's coming. Point number two in verses 8 through 11 He's got work that he's going to do. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. I don't know about you, but whenever I found out that I was going to have a substitute teacher, I thought, sweet, lower expectations, right? This person isn't going to care as much about what I'm doing as my normal teacher. 
And I think there might be an aspect where when the disciples are hearing, I'm leaving, but it's actually for your good because I'm sending somebody else who can help you. Maybe they're thinking, yeah, but a substitute teacher, they're not going to help as much as the normal teacher does. We want our normal teacher. Jesus says emphatically, the Holy Spirit is not a substitute teacher. He will convict the world. He will convict the world. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world? Verse 8, and he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict. That word convict is used 18 times in the New Testament. Every single time it's used, it's used regarding someone being shown their sin, usually with a call to repentance. It's a legal word. It takes us into court. It's indicting somebody by evidence. It's to prosecute. It's to prove somebody guilty. So the Holy Spirit is an advocate for believers, and the Holy Spirit is a prosecutor for non-believers. And this isn't so much the Holy Spirit making you feel bad. There's an aspect of that. But rather a rendering of a verdict. Truth is going to be passed down. Evidence will be given. The verdict is in. And you are convicted. Let me give you just a a couple verses where this word convict is used. Luke chapter 3 verse 19. Herod was, my Bible says, reprimanded by John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist said, you're not allowed to take this woman as your wife. You're not allowed to divorce your other wife. You're not allowed to um, be involved in an incestuous relationship. You can't do these things. It's against the law. He reprimands Herod. That's the word, convicts. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 says, those who continue in sin, rebuke. There's our word, convict. Rebuke in the presence of all. James chapter 2, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus speaking to the Laodiceans says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Reprove, there's our word. The Holy Spirit is going to reprove, convict, reprimand, rebuke. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There's another section of scripture that I think would be helpful for us to see. Because the question now is, wait, how is the Holy Spirit going to do this? How is the Holy Spirit going to render this verdict? How is he going to reprimand? They don't want to listen. They don't want to hear. How is he going to do this? How is he going to convict the world? The answer is through the scriptures. He's going to convict the world through the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23 Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not all say that you're mad? They're going to think there's chaos, confusion, there's craziness. But, verse 24, if all prophesy, and the word here for prophesy is a word that means preaching the word of God, not foretelling the future, an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted, there's our word, by all. He is called to account by all. Why? Because of the preaching of the Word. He shows up in a church, the Word is proclaimed in the church, and he's convicted because of the preaching of the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, you know that verse where Paul tells Timothy, be ready in season and out of season to preach the Word, and then he gives some charges to Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, that's our word for convict. 
So back in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he's going to convict the world. How is he going to do that? He's going to do that through the proclamation of the Word of God. That makes total sense in context because that's exactly why Jesus said they're going to be hated by the world. You're going to go around and be a standard that's going to be convicting to others around you because you're going to say, this is what my God says, just like John the Baptist did, and they're going to hate you for it. So it makes complete sense why Jesus would say, look, I'm leaving, but the person that I'm sending, he's not second class. He's not substitute teacher. He's going to convict the world. He's going to prosecute the world through preachers of the word. Just like the Old Testament prophets, just like Jesus, as the truth is proclaimed, the world will be prosecuted. And then Jesus says this. He gives three ways in which the world will be convicted. Verse 8, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Spirit comes, D.A. Carson says, he will convict the world, that is, prove it guilty, by producing definitive evidence regarding the world's guilt. The world masquerades as righteous and suppresses any evidence to the contrary, and such behavior requires the Spirit to expose its guilt. So the Spirit's going to expose the guilt of the world. Threefold way of exposing the guilt of the world. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9. Concerning sin, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This is the greatest sin of all, to not believe in Jesus. This is the sin that condemns people to hell. And we already have read a number of times in the book of John, people don't want to turn to Jesus. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to love Jesus because they love the darkness and they don't want to come to the light. That's Ephesians 5.13. Deeds will be exposed. Dark deeds will be exposed in the light. So they will not believe in Jesus and therefore their sin is shown. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter tells us the ministry that we are called to have as believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that why have you been saved? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he exposed your deeds, and at one time you were saying, no, I don't want my deeds to be exposed. I hate the light. I want to run from the light. And then God graciously grants regeneration and grows your taste buds, and now you taste, I want the light. I don't want the darkness. Verse 10, you were once not a people. You were in the dark. But now you are the people of God. You once didn't have mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've been called out of darkness into light. So tell others about that. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Jesus says the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word of God, will convict the world concerning sin, because they're going to be given the option. You either follow Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through Him, or you find your own way. And the world will be convicted as they see there's only one of two ways, but I love my darkness. I love the deeds that I want to hang on to. 
That leads to the next point, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. I believe that this righteousness is not only their lack of righteousness, but also Jesus' actual righteousness. They have an option. You either go with Jesus as the only way, the only truth, the only life, and if you reject him, that's sin, and you would turn then in rejecting him to your own righteousness. I can get to God on my own goodness. I can do it on my own. I don't need his help. I'm good enough. Most people think that they're good enough to get to heaven. But there's only one person who is able to get to heaven on his own. That's why Jesus says, concerning righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. You're not going to see me anymore. I'm the only one that can go straight into the Father's presence and not be destroyed. I have righteousness, Jesus is saying, that I can give to the unrighteous people. But we suppress this truth. We think, I'm, I'm righteous enough. I'm okay. Jesus says, I go back to the Father. This is also vindication that his teaching was true. He said he was going to do this, so this is proof that he is truly who he claims to be. He's the only one who can go back to the Father on his own righteousness. And since he is gone, we wouldn't even know the standard of righteousness apart from his word, which is going to be revealed through the scriptures that the Spirit's going to write. So concerning righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, you're going to get the Spirit, He's going to write the Word, you're going to preach the Word, and you're going to preach the Gospel. You're going to preach 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. There's only one way to be saved, the man, Christ Jesus. You're going to preach 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for the ungodly, the just for the unjust, so that He would bring us to God, not on your own righteousness, but on His righteousness. You're going to preach 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Concerning righteousness, because I can go into the Father's presence, I'm going to do the work, I'm going to be exalted, and I'm going to send the Spirit who will give you the fullness of the Scriptures to preach the Gospel. So not only will the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin, which neither you and I can do on our own, but he's also going to direct sinners to Jesus where alone the true righteousness of which we are all lacking may be found. Finally, concerning judgment, verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The world who is guilty of sin essentially says to God, we don't think you are our judge. In fact, we are the judge of you. We don't like what you're doing. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict the world of their wrong judgment and of their impending judgment. Not only are they not my judge, I think of Jesus before Caiaphas, where Caiaphas says he's judging Jesus, he's putting Jesus on uh, the, the witness stand. Tell me plainly, we don't need witnesses, you tell us plainly. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, yes, you have said it. But you'll see the Son of Man coming one day, speaking from Daniel, quoting Daniel, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in power to judge you. You're judging me right now. But that judgment won't last. And there's going to be a day that I will come back to judge you. I think that's what's happening here. Concerning judgment. Why? Because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of this world has been judged. If God has judged the most powerful force of evil, then you won't be able to escape his, his judgment either. 
This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God's done the hardest thing in judging the most evil, the most wicked power in the world, if Satan is condemned, then it'll be an easy thing for him to judge those who would follow Satan. Anyone who follows him is also judged and condemned. If you do what he does, you'll be judged. So the sin that condemns you is the sin of not believing in Jesus. The righteousness that saves you is the righteousness of Christ alone. And unless you believe in Jesus and turn from your sins and trust by faith in Christ alone, then you will be judged. That's the message that the Holy Spirit brings to the world through the preaching of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is imputed righteousness. All three of these are essential to the gospel message. And so Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to bring a correct perception of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convict the world. Conviction's not the same as conversion. He's not converting the whole world, but he's convicting the world, which conversion isn't possible apart from conviction. How does he do this? Notice really, really clearly the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings is His work, not ours. Now, our lives are an open letter to people. We're, we're constantly proclaiming the Word of God to people. But it's not our job to convict people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We just speak the truth of God's Word to one another. We don't have to speak it in an offensive way. We don't have to speak it in a judgmental way. We don't have to speak it with a tone we can just speak the truth in love, step aside, and let the Holy Spirit do His work. Sometimes I actually think we get in the way of what the Holy Spirit's doing when we try to manufacture conviction. It's the Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that opens our eyes when God says, let light shine out of darkness. So, the Holy Spirit is promised in verses 5 through 7. The Holy Spirit is um, told, we are told of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world in verses 8 through 11. And then finally, the work of the Holy Spirit in the disciples. This is verses 12 through 15. Jesus doesn't end there because he doesn't just say, I'm giving you a helper who's going to convict those people. You, you might be asking, well, what about me? What about me? You're leaving me. And Jesus says, no, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many more things to say, the revelation isn't over. Uh, I believe the more here is everything that's going to be contained in the New Testament, but they can't bear it now. They're, they're unable to understand the resurrection right now. They have to wait until Jesus is raised from the dead, comes to speak to them personally, and talks about the ascension before they go, oh, now we understand. You're not able to bear this right now. That word bear, literally it's lifting up a stone. You can't hold this stone. It's the same word that's used in the passage where the religious leaders pick up stones to stone Jesus. You're not able to carry this weightiness, but the Holy Spirit is able, and he will give it to you at a time when you will be able to write it down, record it all comprehensively. Verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes he will guide you in all the truth. So right now you're getting a portion of it, but he's going to guide you in all of it. He's going to guide you one day in all of it. Remember how Jesus is constantly telling people? He heals them and he says, don't tell people who I am. He heals somebody, don't tell. He raises people from the dead and says, don't tell people what I did. 
you have to say, time out, Jesus. How are we going to be able to keep this a secret? People knew I was dead. They came to my funeral, and now you're saying, I can't show back up. And that's one of the coolest magic tricks in the world to be able to say, I'm alive again. This is great. I, you're telling me I can't do this? Th that's going to be really hard to not do. But why did Jesus say that? Jesus was constantly saying that because he's saying the fullness of this message isn't complete. If you just tell people Jesus does these awesome things without, oh, he's our Savior who takes away the sin of the world, then they're going to get an incomplete picture of who I am. They're just going to think I'm a cool miracle worker. We have to wait until the mission is completed, and then, and only then, will all the truth of God's word be given and revealed. He's known as the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Truth because he guides us in truth. John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus says, he will guide you in all the truth, comprehensively. You won't need any other truth than what he is giving to you. Perfect, complete. That's why Peter's going to write in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Because men were moved by the Holy Spirit. They wrote down what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write down. Perfectly, 2 Timothy 3.16. Inerrant, inspired, infallible. It's exactly what God wanted us to have. That's why God's going to say numerous times in the Bible, don't add to this, don't take away from it. Deuteronomy, Proverbs, Revelation, it's scattered throughout the Bible. Don't, this is comprehensive. It's complete. 1 Corinthians 2, you have the mind of Christ because of this book. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, you have an anointing from God. That's the Holy Spirit who wrote this book and enables you to understand what he wrote. So, his ministry to the world is very clearly convicting, convicting, convicting. But his ministry to the disciples, to guide them in all the truth, to write down scripture, and to be able to give that to us so that we can walk and be guided in all the truth. Middle of verse 13, because he's going to guide you in all the truth, because he will not speak on his own initiative. He's going to wait for the Father to tell the Son to tell the Spirit. You just say the word submission in our culture. That's a bad word in our culture. It's not in the Bible. It's beautiful. It's biblical. Holy Spirit is no less God than Jesus or the Father. And yet he's waiting, and he's not speaking on his own initiative. He's waiting for the Father and the Son. What's the ultimate purpose of what he's doing? He's going to disclose to you. He's going to listen. He's going to hear. He'll speak. He'll disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, verse 14. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said to you that he is going to take of mine and will disclose it to you. What's the point of this book? What's the purpose of this book? It's to glorify Jesus. He, verse 14, will glorify me because he's going to take of mine and give it to you. He's going to disclose it to you through the scriptures. What's the goal of the Holy Spirit? It's to spotlight the Son. It's to glorify Jesus. The greatest ministry of the Holy Spirit is to guide our minds to know and love Jesus. That's the greatest ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can miss this when we focus more on the gifts of the Spirit instead of the person and work of Jesus. Some people say, why don't we talk more about the Holy Spirit? 
I think the answer is because the Holy Spirit wants us to talk more about Jesus. He wants to point us to Christ. And notice how the scriptures are going to come about. Verse 15, all the things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. All three members of the Trinity are in this one verse. The source is God the Father and God the Son disclosing himself through the Spirit. So to reject the scriptures is to reject the Trinity. And too often, I I believe that we neglect this book because we want to lean into feelings or emotions or experience instead of hearing God's word clearly this morning saying, you have all the truth you need in this book. You have everything you need. Let the Holy Spirit be your guide in this life to lead you in all the truth. So Jesus promises the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he promises he's going to be the prosecutor for the world through the preaching of the word, and then he promises he's going to be the counselor, the comforter, the helper, and the one who will bring about the fullness of the revelation of Scripture for the disciples. So how do we wrap this up? This is all about the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us, he leads us, he empowers us, he teaches us, he comforts us, he gives us gifts, he seals us. He ultimately brings us to glory. He should be worshipped. He is God. But I think this morning the Spirit would say very clearly in these verses, don't focus on me, focus on Jesus. Don't focus on me, focus on Jesus. Let our praise and worship of the Holy Spirit point us to our praise and worship of the Son. So just three questions. As I was looking at these verses and thinking in my own life, three Three questions under the banner of, is my life aligned with the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Does my life accomplish the purpose of the Spirit? Does my faith reflect His work? So here are the three questions to test that. Number one, how precious is Jesus to me? How precious is Jesus to me? These verses say that the Holy Spirit's going to teach me all the truth. Give, guide me in all the truth in such a way where I will be able to know Jesus and glorify him. How precious is he to us? Question number two, how confident am I in the work of the Spirit? How confident am I really in the work of the Spirit? It's the Spirit who does the work, not us. We don't convict people. The Spirit does. But how confident am I practically, functionally, Do I just present the Word of God and say, the Holy Spirit will work? Or do I say, "Eh, I'll help you on this one, Holy Spirit. I can make this happen now and manipulate it. I'll do it. How confident are you functionally, practically, realistically in the work of the Holy Spirit? Finally, question number three, how faithful are you to share what the Spirit wrote? How faithful am I to share what the Spirit wrote? Uh, We don't convict people, but we're the channel for the work that the Spirit does. How faithful am I as, as a channel, as an ambassador? How well do I know the Scriptures? How well do they permeate my conversations such that the Word of God would go forth and the Holy Spirit would convict through the preaching and proclamation of the Word that He wrote? That's why Paul says, how are they going to hear unless they're told? Romans chapter 10. We have to go and tell. One last place. Go to Acts just really quickly. We'll end here. Acts chapter 2. I want to show you 
an example of somebody who does just this, who is the channel for the work of the Holy Spirit, just preaches the word. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you rejected, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because you do not believe in Jesus. You rejected him. You killed him. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding righteousness because I go to the Father. I'm raised from the dead. I ascend into heaven. I prove that my righteousness is the only righteousness that will allow you to get into heaven. Then drop down to verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's a coming day when God will judge in righteousness concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Peter uses those three aspects of exactly what Jesus told us in John 16. And what's the end result? Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, believe, be baptized, you'll be forgiven. You get the Holy Spirit's results when you just simply preach the message that the Holy Spirit wrote down. Father, I pray that we would be a church, would be known for being faithful, faithful ambassadors, faithful channels of your word. We see so clearly in your word that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, and God, I I know that he's convicted me this week, and I pray through the proclamation of your word he would convict others. I know that he will do that. God, I pray that he would lead us in righteousness. Thank you that we have a guide who will guide us in all the truth. We're not left alone. So, Father, we want to praise you for sending us your Son. And we want to praise you, Jesus, for promising your spirit. And we want to praise you, Spirit, for pointing us back to the work that the Son did because of the plan of the Father. We love you, three in one. And we pray it all in the precious name of our Savior, our righteousness, Jesus Christ. Amen.